Hi Dave, how are you? Can you hear me well? Uh, the unmute, uh, to unmute, it's all the way on the bottom right corner. There should be a little microphone symbol. Um, if you press on there, you should be unmuted. Um, if it doesn't work um, at all, can, can you hear me? Do you see the room chat? Could you, where I wrote welcome everyone? Um, it's like where the speech bubble is there. If you click on that on the left or bottom corner, there should be a little one and a speech bubble. If you want to tell me if you, if you can hear me or not. Um, and then we go from there with solution, <laughs> with troubleshooting. Hi, Victoria. Good evening. Had some technical issues. Oh, we did? Our guest. Yeah, we couldn't Oops. hear him. I think it didn't work to unmute. I feel like every time our guests join the first time the app, uh, the unmute button doesn't work. <laughs> like, it's so, so weird. So hopefully they'll just leave and come back and everything will be great. Yeah, let me see. It usually is. But they got here, right? The guest is here. Yeah, let me just write him really quick an email one second. Hi, welcome friends. We're just troubleshooting and getting our guest back on the app with the functional mic. For a change.
Welcome back, David. How is your mic working these days? Hi, Dave. Uh, I'm still not sure if you can hear us. I hope you can. So on the bottom right um, corner, there should be a little microphone symbol. So if you press that, yes. Okay, Hi. did I do it? Fantastic. Yes. It worked. <laughs> Hi there. Yes. So exciting. Hello. I don't know why whenever people join the first time on Clubhouse, the unmute function doesn't work. I don't know what this is about, uh, but um, anyhow, now it works. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Whatever you guys want to do is fine. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for coming and making that yeah, call and all this trouble. Oh, it's easy. Perfect. Meet Victoria. Um, she is doing wonderful interviews. So. Let me just go over really quick. Um, I'll introduce you shortly, like briefly, like some basic information about you. And then usually Victoria asks a, a couple or a few interview, general interview questions before we start with you sharing the, you know, the science and your project. Is that okay with you? It's more like yeah, about, of okay, perfect. Yeah, it's like, yeah to start the conversation basically and yeah. yeah i posted the paper on top um so people can follow along if you want to refer to something in the paper or um it's just there so people can check it out so got it hi first how are you welcome always nice to see you Hi everyone, Susan, Nazil, Mona, Julie, Ivy, Renee, Scott. <laughs> how are how is everyone? Hi Dr. Shah, how are you today? Hi both Katarina, Victoria and our guest David. Hopefully happy Monday actually. Yeah, happy Monday. Yeah, it has been a very busy Monday, but a good one. Although yeah, happy Monday everyone. Thank you. Happy Monday, as long as the air conditioning is functioning. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, in Brooklyn, there were some neighborhoods where they didn't have power. So, yeah, I really feel bad for people if they, you know, if the power didn't work. <laughs> the last few days. Yeah, that happened in Manhattan too, last week I heard, but at night, so there was no electricity. Yeah, gladly we have been fine, but um, yeah, it was Lucky, I guess. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, and in some countries, most people don't have even AC, right? Where it was so hot um, these days. I think the UK, it has the hottest day ever recorded last week. So, yeah, it's been... Well, it's a new normal, I guess, so... Mm. Shouldn't pretend that's something we didn't expect to happen. <laughs> I wonder how that affects aggression. <laughs> Not well. Yeah, I think we can slowly start, um, if that's okay with everyone. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. And of course, a special thanks to um, Dave here. And let me introduce you to everyone. Um, Doc Dave uh, Chester. He um, is sharing his research today here with us and he's the director of the SBN lab. He's an assistant professor in the VCU Department of Psychology and director of the VCU Social Psychology doctoral program and um, he is very passionate about understanding why people hurt each other and his motivation to actually go um, and um, being an undergrad um, student uh, was um, to understand human aggression. And uh, he was an undergrad at uh, Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. And after his um, graduation, he continued, like he started um, working in research and the University of Michigan's Aggression Research Group as a lab manager. And then he was a lab manager at the University of Texas at Austin. And he did his PhD in social psychology at the University of Kentucky and in Nathan D. Wall's uh, lab. And um, he then um, merged the experience in psychology and neuroscience to better understand aggressive behavior. And in his free time or outside of the office, he, um, he likes to run <laughs> relatively long uh, distances, hiking and camping and hanging out with his dog, Willie, and building things out of rocks as a stonemason that is quite amazing and he won various awards uh, one of the recent one was young investigator program award of the international society for research on aggression uh, his dissertation uh, won an award at the heritage foundation for personality and social psychology and so on so uh yeah it's an honor having you here Thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge and time with us. And uh, yeah, Victoria, please go ahead with your questions. All right. Thank you, Katarina. And thank you again, David. Science Society is so happy to welcome you here. I would like to give you an opportunity to build on what Katarina just told us about that. Um, it's really fascinating to hear about not only the path of your work, but um, Stonemasonry? <laughs> I gotta Google that. I gotta Google, <laughs> see if I can see some of your work there too. That sounds so, yeah, working with your hands. That's great. Um, so what I, I would like to ask you 
is about your your affinity for science and if you can reflect on your life and think about a time when you noticed that science was something was a path that you wanted to take and something that you felt particularly interested in at any time sure yeah yeah i mean it's throughout my life it's a it's a theme so thank you very much katarina for that lovely lovely intro and thanks victoria for those questions um yeah i i lived uh a interesting life and i think um i like stonemasonry for the exact opposite reason that i like to study people and so i like stonemasonry because everything is very set and dry and clear you have the laws of physics uh to deal with and that's it and each rock is its own personality but you can really at the end of the day hit it with a hammer and make it you know kind of conform to your will people are not <laughs> are not that way and so i'm interested in people because i'm i'm interested in problems and i just get stuck on some things and i can't get unstuck from them and so yeah i think my life the whole time i've been stuck on the question of why do people hurt each other I, i've seen it a lot in my life in my personal life and just reflected in society and i've just always been stuck on it um the questions that or the, excuse me the answers that exist for why people hurt each other just aren't sufficient for me um and so i'm trying to get better answers to that question and so that's why i love science is because it can help us figure out the questions that we've been stuck on our whole life yeah thank you because we can't just hit people over the head with a hammer and solve we can't problems like we really can't as much as we'd like to mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, this is, it's, it's, uh, it's giving me more questions, but um, for now, if you can take us from um, that point that you were mentioning about you know, really feeling stuck and then bring us up maybe through some events in your work that, that um, carry us to the point that you are now doing the current research that you're going to present tonight. Absolutely, I'd love to. Um, before I delve into that, can I kind of break um, maybe decorum and just kind of ask, Do like, who, who are the folks I'm talking to right now? Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, uh, yeah, create, who are you? <laughs> yeah, create your own decorum. This is, this is your room that yeah, we're having here. Yeah, I would, I would just like to hear from the folks who are here. Like, who are you? What do you do? Why are you here? Katarina? Oh, why am I here? Interesting question. Um, so, uh, and then also why I invited you uh, for this talk specifically, right? So maybe some background information would be interesting. So, um, yeah, I grew up in, like I'm from Portugal, I grew up in Germany as an immigrant kid going to a high school that um let that leads to a path of university there are three different high schools in germany and usually immigrant kids don't um are not recommended by the teachers to go to this type of high school they're usually recommended because uh yeah because you don't know the language well enough and stuff like that um to that type of high school 
And um, yeah, then I managed, I was a teenage mom. I managed to go through university and um, then an international PhD program uh, that was from a Portuguese amazing woman created and financed by the EU. gave me the opportunity to travel to all these amazing labs and then choose whatever lab I wanted to join around the world, whatever scientific um, topic I wanted to uh, work on, which brought me then to the US, um, uh, Duke University, NYU, and also Woods Hole, Marine Biological Laboratory, had amazing experiences. And I went back to Europe, came back as a postdoc. Those experiences were somewhat good, mostly not so good because the power balance was very different. I didn't have my own salary, not my own lab money. So I was like this immigrant (laughs) dependent on this visa from this boss. And, uh, you know, like uh, it was a very different experience then. But now I'm here. I managed to get through that too. I work in industry and also uh, still I'm affiliated to academia and then I created the science society because for two reasons I wanted to have scientists like the the view especially during COVID of scientists in social media was quite bad and I wanted to kind of address that to give like the real stories of real scientists um, to give that an opportunity on one hand on the other hand also that everyone gets access to talk with people that do the actual research uh, no matter you know what education backgrounds people have and um, yeah to to be here share stories share the research and also get to know the person who's doing the research that's kind of important to me so that's why here and then the aggression of course growing up as a immigrant uh, and you know being also teenage mom at the same time exposed me to some of not so nice uh, um, you know part of the human behavior also during Trump era times um, uh, living in a in a con- uh, county that was mostly Trump supporters like exposed me to some not so nice parts of the human nature so uh, I guess that kind of uh, I thought that was really interesting and, and and made me invite you Dave so yeah thank you for asking sorry for this very long answer <laughs> no that's great uh, long is good does anyone else have anything they'd like to share I would just like to know who, who I'm talking to. Yeah, I love that question. It makes so much sense because you're, you're talking to these flat circles on a screen and, and Katarina, always share that story, please, and never worry about the duration. Um, so hi, David, I'm Victoria. And I, um, I think it's interesting when Katarina and I talk because she's recounting her experience as as you know, single teenage mom, and I was the child of a single teenage mom, so we, we sort of compare notes in that, and it's interesting to hear ways that it's shaped us in, in similar ways that it's shaped us. So now, excuse me, I work in arts education 
I work mainly in digital arts and theater, and I integrate sciences because really everything is interrelated anyway, and, and you know, sep I, separation of subjects is really just an artificial byproduct of, of school as we know it. But um, anyway, that's, I do that, and I, I do that because I, it's important to me that, that my students and their um, generally elementary school age, although I also work in a correctional facility, a young women's prison, and youth shelters, and so that allows me to reach older populations. But I want my students to, to either rekindle or nurture their own creative freedom because it's so stifled in schools and it's so, it can be ephemeral, but it can also be strong. And so that's, I feel that I'm, I'm there in schools to, to tell kids that they can experiment with their ideas and their ideas are valid and just to try them and see what they learn and, and also to remind them that their curiosity is important and to follow it. So that's why I'm here too in science society because that's what we're doing sharing science with everybody that we can reach and not in a hierarchical way whatsoever so we're we bring on speakers that we feel can share something important from their lives with our guests with our audience um, and so it's just important to me to be a part of that so yeah thank you for asking I love that you that you are uh, re doing the reconfiguration. And uh, so Dr. Shaw, Joyce, would you like to have a go at David's question? I'm, thank you so much for asking, but I'm passing the question for now. Thank you so much. Joyce, hello. Yeah, yeah well, I'll say something. Um, I have a sort of a strange pathway myself. Um, uh, I, I was, um, let's say I got a bachelor's in biology at UC Irvine, and then I was getting a PhD in ecology at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and doing research on systems ecology at Oak Ridge National Lab. Um, and things seemed to be going the way they should, but then I got sick while I was in graduate school, and I, I did gradually get worse, but I managed to you know get through the PhD and do one postdoc but by the end of the postdoc, I was completely disabled. And so I was disabled for quite a few years and I was even bedridden and emaciated at one point. Um, and it was a very severe case of um, ME-CFS, which you know, people talk about as being similar in some ways to long COVID. Um, and so I got better a little bit here and there over time with various methods, but then I had a downturn about 12 years ago, and I couldn't really tolerate medications and supplements and things like that. So I just reacted to everything. So I just decided, well, I got to try to figure out something that will help with the reactions. And so just did a lot of research and experimentation over the last uh, 12 or 14 years. And, and I finally, I learned a whole lot of things that I'm hoping I can um, figure out how to help other people with. So I to do to try to do that, I started a company and, and I'm um, releasing an app, and then there'll be other products too. Um, so anyway, I hope I can help people, and I'm 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 curious about all sorts of topics in science, and so this is Katerina has a really great room, and I appreciate her doing it and and the people who help her. 
Thanks, son. I'm done. Thank you, Joyce. Um, if I may, Dr. Shaw, um, I would like to say briefly that Dr. Shaw is a wonderful woman who comes to our rooms and is famous amongst us for sort of toward the end asking the most fascinating, amazing questions. And so there's, there's just a, a teeny tip of the iceberg description of Dr. Shaw. Yeah. Thank you so much, both of you. <laughs> that was very funny. Dark matter, um, black holes, medicine, about anything she will ask an expert question. It's, it's so amazing. I don't even know how she does it's it. It's true. We're in awe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we can share this with you here, Dr. Shaw. <laughs> black side That's of the true. moon. Mm. Yeah. So, David, there you are. I'm here and that's great. I, I'm very grateful to hear the background on each of you. I just, as a psychologist, as a human, I just, I just, I'm not used to talking into abstract representations of humans. So I just am very grateful that you shared those, those parts of your life because that's, uh, that's why we're here is to learn about people and, uh, and to share. So yeah, uh, thank you all very much for taking this time to, to chat with me. I'm, I'm thrilled to spend it with you. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm especially thrilled because I'm, I'm normally kind of confined to the stuffy venues of academia where I have to talk at a conference or at a lab meeting or something like that. And this is so much nicer. This is so freeing. So please feel free to interrupt or do whatever. I don't, I don't care. This is just great. It's, it's, it's 9.17 PM. I'm way up past my bedtime. Um, so this is just lovely. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I, uh, this study, this paper that we're talking about, it, it happened, um, I don't know what the opposite of serendipitously is, but it, it happened for bad reasons. Um, so I was hired at the Virginia Commonwealth University in 2016. And then in 2017, we had this horrible event, um, in Charlottesville. Virginia. And so I don't know how many of you are from the States uh, or how many of you keep up with the news, but basically we had uh, just this terrible um, event called Unite the Right, where a bunch of white supremacist uh, Nazis took over Charlottesville, Virginia for, for an evening and a day. And um, people who are against that, as they should be, uh, stood up against them. And there was a horrible scene of violence and things like that. And I knew in that moment that I needed to kind of direct my research away from just focusing on how person A hurts person B and to really try to understand how group A can hurt group B. And so that kind of launched this project. And so there's been a ton of research, decades of research on you know, intergroup aggression, how do people hurt each other? Um, why do they hurt each other? But the advent of brain imaging techniques kind of gives us a unique opportunity to glimpse our, ourselves into uh, mechanisms that were never before available to us. And so we tried to do that. And then this study, we think we kind of took a good initial glimpse. And so I don't know how many of you have followed like, you know, the James Webb telescope and the Hubble. We're like the um, Polaroid version of the Hubble. Um, we're trying to take a, an image as to what's going on in the brain when people are hurting someone from another group. And then we get a very fuzzy picture 
And I can only hope that, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to get a good Hubble image and that we'll get a James Webb type image. Um, but for right now, we have the tools that we have. And the idea here is that we're trying to understand the mechanisms that make people hurt people who are from different groups than them. So having said all that, I'll just kind of take a moment. And if anyone has any questions or things they'd like to talk about, I would, I would love to hear them. I did just want to add, since we introduced ourselves, that this room is also filled with people who come regularly or maybe are just stopping in, but I see many people who, who come here regularly and uh, share questions or appreciation or thoughts in the room chat. Um, so I wanted to make sure to acknowledge them. We have 33 people here right now who are gathered and really interested to hear what else you're going to share. So thank you everyone for coming and, and thank you, David, for caring. I, I care a great deal. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for everyone who's here right now for taking the time just to chat. Um, I don't think that there are much more important issues than what we're talking about here tonight. So it makes me kind of feel like we're in a salon, you know, in the, antiquated environment in which they arose and we're to kind of begin a salon normally we'd be feted with various snacks and, and drinks and things like that so i'm just imagining all of you sitting by a fire with various roast meats uh, at your side and some kind of uh, fermented beverage um but yeah i mean i think i think this topic is as important as it gets and i think we really need to understand how do people find themselves in a position where, you know, normally a very non-violent, non-aggressive person, and yet some folks who, you know, people who know them would, would never think of them as an aggressive person might actually luxuriate and, and, and take great satisfaction um, in the death and dismemberment of their, of their enemies. And so that's kind of what I see as the, is the topic of conversation is a, how do we get here? How do you get to a place where you can uh, be what you would assume is a good person who doesn't hurt people and yet still at the same time hold in your mind that the death and dismemberment and torture of, of my foes is uh, not even just, you know, allowable, but uh, appetitive, desirable, rewarding, pleasant, delicious satisfactory, you know, all these words that we use for food, people readily apply to the desiccation and destruction of their foes. And so we, we took a very tiny, you know, very correlational, blurry view into this. And so I, I, I would like to talk about that a little bit. Um, so before we get into the nitty gritty about what we did and what we found, are there any questions in general about like the, the research question or things like that? I think so far I don't see anything in the chat um, uh, asking a question about, you know, why doing this research. Um, so thank you so much for asking. Cool. Yeah, I just I just want folks to intervene because, you know, like we have these ideas about how to study these things, but they're just our ideas and I would love input. So, you know, when, I, when I'm trying to um understand what is happening in the brain when people are hurting people from a different group 
I'm confronted with the practical realities of how do you ask that question. And so the way I did it was let's find two rival groups and we'll find one you know, set of members from that group and we'll put them in the brain scanner and we'll give them a chance to hurt someone from that group. Um, and that's obviously a much more logistically difficult question than uh, you would think. So there's lots of groups in the world. And so I'm very curious what folks here in the audience would choose as, okay, you're trying to find rival groups. You're trying to find, you know, this group, group A, doesn't like group B. Um, what would y'all choose as groups in that situation? Um, oh, in which group to be? Like kind of the strong group that kind of, um, you know, like can take over the other group or the... Well, just imagine you're the you're the investigator and you're trying to design a study and you've got to find a group that doesn't like another group. So in the real world, like, you know, in the study that you're going to run, what groups would you decide to use? Uh, yeah, so if I could, I would probably um, ask uh, one group kind of that is right now Democrats versus Republics, like there's such a aggression going on between them. So uh, in Stony Brook, when I was a postdoc, there was on one side of the street, a lot of like yelling Trump supporters on the side and then another group kind of um, trying to oppose. They were kind of less. So I would probably ask those two rival groups um, especially, you know, if they are standing there, the street's probably easy to ask. I'm looking in the chat and I'm seeing lots of really good suggestions. It's it's really tricky when you try and decide which groups to use um, for lots of reasons. I think, honestly, one that people don't realize is that uh, you don't want to get people too upset because... Um, in the MRI machine, you can't move your head. And if you get people too upset, they start moving their head a lot, like a lot. <laughs> and so it's really impossible to do brain imaging with people who are like really upset. You have, to, you have to fine tune it. You have to find a group that gets them, you know, just enough upset. And I imagine if I was in an MRI scanner and I was interacting with like a Trump supporter and they were really telling me that like, you know, I deserve to be expelled from the country. I don't think I could keep my head still, you know, amongst other things. So I, I, I feel like, you know, that's, you kind of have to dial it down a bit. So, you know, I think in the comments, I see lots of better suggestions than what I, than what I said, but at the end of the day, we, we picked college rivals. And so we picked folks in the community who graduated from one university, knowing that there was a university, kind of like a rival university right next door. And when we looked at the ratings of how folks felt about it, you know, these are, it's a very tepid group rivalry. Right? This is not um, Sunni and Shia. This is not North and South or Republicans and, and, and Democrats. This is, this is just kind of really a weak tap water version of, um, of intergroup rivalry. But it was enough to elicit the results that we found. And I'm actually, that, when people ask me, like, what are you most surprised about in the context of the study? It's that we found anything at all. Because when you look at the ratings of the groups, 
when they rate the out group. So when the VCU students were rating their their rivals, they were like, oh yeah, I still like them, I'll like you know, decently. But like, imagine you're talking about folks from Israel and Palestine. They hate each other for the most part, right? And so these these are, you know, it's absurd that we found any results at all. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we had folks get in a brain scanner and they played this little game against, uh, you know, someone from the opposing team where they could have an opportunity to blast them with a really horrible noise. It's it's awful. It sounds like a, like a robotic cat getting sucked into a jet turbine. It's it's terrible. And they could pick the volume that that, that noise blast was played at. And yeah, we found that, you know, for the most part, initially, people weren't even that mean to the out group. The, the, the VCU students we inter interviewed uh, were just as aggressive towards VCU students as they were to the out group. But then we kind of played a little trick on them. So we had them play uh, a ball tossing game with their, you know, out group opponent, right? So we had from the person, the student from the other university and the student from the other university, you know, started off playing the ball back and forth, you know, uh, we had this little game set up where it's like, oh, yeah, just just play with the ball, toss the ball around, you know, no big deal. Uh, and then all of a sudden their opponent started to exclude them. They started to throw the ball to another person over and over again and stopped, uh, you know, paying them any attention. And then after that, that's when we really pissed them off. They were furious and they started to, you know, really give them the noise blasts um, that they didn't show uh, before. And you could even talk to them. Like you would see them come out of the brain scanner and they'd be like, did you see like what happened in there? I'd be like, no, I have, I have no idea. And they'd be like, that motherfucker just like didn't throw the ball to me like at all for no reason. And some of them would even want to know like where the person was. They're like, show me where they are. I'm like, I can't, I can't show you where this person is. They're in a laboratory somewhere. Of course, this person isn't real, but you know, we couldn't say that yet. And they're like, I want to go talk to this motherfucker. Um, and we decided to, you know, kind of just play along for a while. And so the debrief, we're like, actually, that person doesn't exist. But anyway, the point is, is that we used a very, you know, lukewarm manipulation of group conflict. And that showed up in our, in our results. Um, and I do wonder if we used some of the groups that y'all suggested, if we had gotten more robust results, though, I do wonder about the head movement issue. Um, but yeah, any comments or, or questions so far? No, that sounds uh, really interesting <laughs> and, uh, that you have to keep into consideration that people can't be too upset. But uh, yeah, I haven't thought of that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want them to start throwing stuff across the room, right? You know, um, you want to just get them just the right amount upset. Of course, we have ethical issues and things like that. So anyway. So the nice thing about them being in the MRI scanner is that we can look at what's going on, their brain activity, um, while they decided how aggressive to be both against uh, people from their in-group, so people who are from their same university, and folks from their out-group, so from the rival university in town. And that even though we kind of got this very lukewarm group effect, we saw these profound brain differences. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we pre-registered uh, a prediction. And so I don't know how many of you are familiar with the open science movement, but there's this whole push in science right now, which I'm very fond of, which is that, you know, if 
you don't lay things out beforehand, you know, before you study, you can kind of massage your data and manipulate your predictions so it seems like they fit the results that you got. But my lab is part of this much broader movement in which we're trying to be more transparent. And so what we try and do is before we even ever run the study, we go online, we post a document and we say, here's what we expect to find and here's how we're gonna try and find it. And that's a really great way to be transparent about our research and to make sure that we're not just uh, torturing our data to make sure it says what we think it's gonna say. And so with that, we predicted that we were going to see heightened activation in certain parts of the brain uh, during outgroup aggression. And so when I say outgroup aggression, I mean, when you are trying to hurt people from the group that you are not part of, right? The rival group. And so in the context of our study, when you're trying to assign these like horrible noise blasts to your outgroup partner. So you're trying to make these terrible, terrible noises of a, of a cat getting sucked into a jet turbine when you're turning up the volume for that, um, for, your, for your opponent. And so we predicted that we would see activity in specific parts of the brain, um, specifically the nucleus accumbens and um, going rostrally into the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, looking at what's kind of commonly known as the reward circuit in the brain. And the idea here being that hurting people from a different group might feel good. And there's lots of reasons for us to think that people say it would be good and all that, but you know, we can't just trust self-reports. We often have to look into the biology. So having said that now, I'm curious if anyone in the audience has alternative predictions or concerns or reservations about that prediction. Do you really think that, that was a wise choice for us to have made you know do you really think that hurting people from a rival group would be rewarding um i saw that dr Provin sina you joined did you want to uh, comment on this i just joined and so i did not hear the earlier part to comment on whether the hypothesis has any basis or not. So I listened to that part. I had some questions on the way the open research is going on, but I'll hold on to that question. Thank you. Um, yeah, if I um, come, I really like that you did this um, sharing before and how you're going to um, collect data and analyze the data and uh, share your hypothesis. And um, that is really interesting that it kind of a reward, not just like a impulse uh, control issue, but it's an actual reward um, that you hypothesize that, that that is really interesting. And I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really good hypothesis. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was thinking, I t sometimes think that, um, when people are, are violent to someone, they have it in their mind. It's like they are doing something good. It's they're ridding, they're punishing, they're, they're the hand of justice. They're, you know, that sort of thing. And, or the other person is subhuman or something. 
at least a little bit in some cases. And so then they feel that they're doing something good. And so then that makes them feel that it's rewarding when they, when they do that. Anyway, that's, that's one thought. No, I think that's exactly the point is that, you know, we've, we've labored in aggression science under this misconception is that like the people who are violent and vengeful are people who are just angry and hostile and furious. And of course they are, um, but not really. I think a lot of them are exercising their violent tendencies because they either currently are feeling fantastic. Uh, it feels great, you know, to inflict harm on people that you deem it worthy of or that you think you will feel good later. You know, so a lot of folks are, you know, it sucks to blow myself up right now, but, you know, in 10 minutes I'll be in, in, in paradise or something like that. I think um, positive emotions, reward and hedonic affect really play a much bigger role in, in motivating violence than people have given, you know, I think they've given short shrift to it. And that's been like my work for the past decade is, is really trying to say, it's not just about like, oh, I'm like mad, so I hurt people. It's that I'm mad and I think that hurting people will make me feel better. And I think we have good evidence for that. And I think that an acute case of that is that not only will you know hurting people make me feel better, but really when I hurt my enemies, it'll really make me feel better. And that's where it starts to transmute itself into being, oh, this is just like an academic little interesting quirk of the mind to being like, oh, this is what motivates people to literally kill um, others in violent terrorist acts. And so this quickly goes from being like, oh, what like an interesting little quip to being like, okay, this might be a mechanism that really violent, uh, motivates violent behavior. And as a, you know, a member of, of the United States, I'm a U.S. citizen, and right now I'm in a very terrifying position, which I'm watching right-wing extremism rise in my, in my society, and I'm watching violent acts be um, inflicted all the time, and I'm just watching them not being motivated by anger and hatred, which of course, ultimately they are, but I'm seeing more and more it's being motivated by appetitive instincts, and this feels good, I can't wait to own the liberals, to destroy them, um, and so that's why I think that our findings have this broader significance, is that I I think it's wrong for us to try and intervene on the negative emotions so much. I think it's much more wise for us to think about how do positive feelings motivate partisan and sectarian violence. Are you... Very, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Please do. Cut me off whenever you want. Cut. Okay. Are you... Thank you. Are Am, am I hearing that you're describing that people are self-soothing because if when you're saying that they're making this choice to hurt another person in order to uh, make themselves feel better feel that they're doing the right thing it seems so self-serving and so but is that are, are you suggesting that it's a method of self-soothing such as or medicating in a way absolutely yeah i i think you know you're never gonna explain more human behavior than by invoking um, Thorndike's law of effect, right? Thorndike was a piece of shit human being, racist, eugenicist, but he did come across a very good idea, which is simply that the law of effect holds, which is that organisms try to do behaviors that make them feel better and not feel worse. 
And at the end of the day, feeling good is going to drive more behavior than uh, trying to feel bad, bad somehow. So, okay. so yeah, I do believe absolutely these folks are engaging in some kind of therapy. And it makes sense that the folks who we see who are doing it are the ones doing it, right? You don't see folks from the upper echelons of socioeconomic, socioeconomic strata engaging in, you know, partisan violence. You see folks who are down and out. You see folks who are poor and uh, indigent and unemployed and have no prospects. They're the ones doing this because their lives are shitty. And violence and retribution, especially on behalf of their group and against the group that they hate, will yield them the most hedonic benefits. So that's that's my take. Can I ask something? Yeah, um, I think my question will be, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with this literature at all. I'm from a business school and that too, I know a little bit about experimental economics. Um, but one thing that typically does come up is that the behavior changes when it's a single period versus a multi-period game. Uh, think of a basketball game or something. You, know, you can try to hit a rival, but you know that if you're going to play five games, it can come back to you. So uh, have you thought of something like that? Uh, consider the PTM scenario where the behavior may be different. Um, and secondly, uh, since it's an experiment, have you considered changing the nature of the rivalry? Because rivalry could be pretty, can vary in degrees, let's put it this way. Um, and uh, if those two dials of the research machine are controlled, you may get some results. That's fine. Thank you. No, those are excellent, excellent questions. And you're, you're cutting right to the heart of the matter. It's like, you know, we make these decisions about who to hurt and what kind of satisfaction we might take in it, we have to consider the broader social ecological context. And so the work of like Molly Crockett at Yale University shows that like people are for the most part pretty impervious to that kind of information, which is exactly against what I would expect. Um, you would think that folks would, in a one-shot interaction, I'm never gonna see you again, um, be happy to inflict vengeance, but maybe if I'm going to see you in the future, maybe I'll kind of dial it back a little bit, or maybe there's just no reason for me to be vengeful in, a, in an interaction where uh, I'm never going to see you again. But uh, the research shows that people's impulses went out and they went out over reason. And so that folks who know that they will never interact with this person again are still similarly vengeful um, to people who that they will, they know they're going to see tomorrow morning. And so our study was kind of based on that expectation, which is that, you know, they're playing this game against someone they don't know, and they have no expect expectation that they're going to see them again in the future. But the research shows that that actually they don't care, that we kind of have these very uh, non-contextual, unsophisticated um, psychological approaches to these problems in which we just assume that we're going to see people in the future and we behave accordingly and so if you screw me over i'm going to screw you over right back um and i would say that the explanation for that is simply from evolutionary psychology where it's it's better to assume that you're going to see someone again than not uh, because especially given our ancestral history we typically saw people again right you know we were in these small tribal bands if you saw someone on tuesday you're probably going to see them 
by the end of the week. Um, and that was before the week was even invented. So yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's my response. Uh, hi, uh, it's, uh, so far I'm, I'm enjoying a lot the conversation, uh, Doctor, thank you. Uh, but uh, there is also like, you, you have been focusing so far in uh, unsophisticated people, but we also have this historical uh, like experience with Nazism, where we have like the most uh, sophisticated society, as I remember, probably they are they were like the most educated with uh, higher PhDs uh, rate uh, ever, and they became Nazis. And um, I think that the, the the narrative there was that. Uh, they felt uh, threatened, like an existential threat. Uh, after that, they thought, uh, like, they did the exercise. They, they, they came out uh, with this philosophical, like a strategical take that we're going to do these horrible things uh, because uh, even when we, we hate them, uh, those are the best uh, things to do uh, for uh even the whole uh, human uh, race were, of course, they, they, they think they, they were at the top. Uh, and they, they uh, expressly uh, hurt people. What I'm saying is, uh, we also have that experience, doesn't it? Uh, where very sophisticated people uh, came out with this decision of uh, expressly hurting other people uh, out of uh, fear for, for their own uh, future, uh, future and existence. Um, and I think that's also something that we, to a degree is happening here. It's not only uh, the same franchise, the same franchise people, there is also very sophisticated people who, who have come uh, to, to, to that. No, I totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it goes across the spectrum. Violence and retribution and partisan violence are not uh, the province of one group of people uh, at all. It's not sequestered to low or medium or high socioeconomic strata. Every person is prone to intergroup violence. And that's why I think this is so important that we're talking about this. Um, we can often cloak it under the guise of something fair and helpful uh you know maybe we should you know let's say I'm, I'm someone high in socioeconomic status and i say oh i see all these like you know these homeless encampments underneath this bridge i don't like that and so i think they should be expelled but i can make up the fact that oh it's for their own benefit you know help connect them with social services uh you know it'll help get them out of the streets and things like that when of course that's not true i'm just really just making their lives worse everyone is victim to partisan violence and intergroup violence, and, and no one is, is is free from that. Um, and I think this really raises a really important question, which my lab is tackling right now, which is like, how do people hurt people, hurt others, but still feel like they're good people? You know, how do you feel like, how do you wake up in the morning? The majority of people wake up and like yesterday, they probably hurt someone. The majority of people probably hurt someone the day before. So when you wake up in the morning, most of you have hurt someone. So how do you wake up that morning and still feel good about yourself? And my lab right now is kind of chasing that question down. 
And if any of you have any insights, I would I would love to hear them. Maybe I, I mean, I, ha, have you looked into uh, how like tribal uh, the tribal approach uh, maybe the, the the thing to look there. So to the degree that my tribe, what I feel as my tribe, uh, is uh, as I what uh, some people think uh, an existential threat. And that just my survival and the survival of my tribe justify hurting other people. Have you looked into that somehow? No, I mean that is that is the thing that that's the question right now that we're kind of looking at. Um, that's such a great research question. I hope you're a researcher somewhere because we could really use you. Um, <laughs> it's it's it, that's the most important thing we're asking right now. Is that you know like. I think one of the best ways that people can cloak their violence in the garb and the clothing of altruism is to say, I'm hurting you, yes, but I'm helping my family, I'm helping my group. Um, and how that people go about that in their own minds right now, we don't have a good sense of that, but we're studying that right now. So I'm so glad you, you asked that question. I hope, I hope you're a researcher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, David. No, I'm not a researcher. I, I just uh, think I read a lot about this. I, I am reading uh, Zizek uh, about this, uh, this uh, um, like uh, explanation of how uh, Nazi Germany uh, came out to, to do those atrocities. I think it's very much on point, and it comes from him. Um, yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I appreciate a lot what you are saying, and uh, looking forward to getting close to, to, to the research. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, I hope you consider research in your future because you have it very much in your skill set. I just want to add, if you don't mind, um, I, you might have said this before, but um, what about male versus female and intergroup inter differences? Because I have to believe there are some people that really are different. You know, you think of people who become Quakers and, you know, so on. Are you looking at variability? Yeah, so Mark, Mark Van Vogt, um, I think he's at Free University Amsterdam. Um, he has a, a whole line of research on this, the male warrior hypothesis, suggesting that males have evolved to kind of be these tribal warriors where we're constantly on, on, on alert for outgroup threats and that, uh, you know, given an outgroup threat, we, we all of a sudden summon this very like anti-outgroup, pro-ingroup uh, psychology. And there's some good evidence for that. Um, and there's some evidence that women, women don't have that exact same coalitional mindset, but it's, you know, the evidence is, is, is I wouldn't say it's super strong. So I, I would like to see a lot more research on that. But your your subjects were just males, is that correct? Or? Yes, sorry. Um, my all our subjects were men. Um, that's because of the project that we were doing. It was part of a broader project on, on male psychopathy. Um, it seemed it makes sense if you're going to talk about aggression and violence. Talking about looking at men makes the most sense. Um, if you know, so if you if you came to me and said like, okay, what one very you get one variable to understand violence. What one variable would you get? And I would say, just how do you identify? And folks who identify as men, 
versus folks who identify as women or something else, that's going to be the number one best predictor of how likely you are to engage in physical violence, far and away. Um, and so looking at men makes the most sense because the standard deviation between men and women on violence, you know, it's, it, it, you're looking at massive, massive effect. Thanks for answering that. Thank you. It looks like Dr. Um, Praveen had a mic. Maybe not. Uh, yeah, Dr. Praveen, if you want to ask your question now, or we can also wait and, and have your question later. Um, yeah, thank you, Dave, for um, for sharing this and um, and the reasoning why having um, males um, in the beginning of you know, I guess maybe in future studies, um, are you going to maybe compare male versus female in in the future? Yeah, that's the hope. Um, you know, this, this was always a very, you know, preliminary investigation. We just kind of want to take a first first glance um, and hopefully we get a bigger telescope with some grant funding. Um, then yes, of course, we're always looking uh, for a broader sampling pool. It's absurd to think that aggression is just the, you know, that's the the realm of men and that women don't somehow aggress. We know that that's not true whatsoever. Um, and we know that levels of aggression and styles of aggression have been overstated. We know it's an absolutely absurd to say that, you know, women are verbally and socially aggressive and men are physically aggressive. That is a, that's a trope based on in nonsense. Um, and so I, I strongly encourage all of you to discard that notion. We know that's not true. Recent research has shown that Men and women are both aggressive. Men are more physically aggressive, but men and women actually are pretty similar in their verbal and social aggression. So please do not say that women are, are more like they spread more rumors and things like that. Guys spread just as many rumors. Really, if you want to find sex differences, you have to look at physical aggression, who punches who in the face, things like that. Um, and then you have to look at severity, right? So if, if women also punch people in the face, it just doesn't typically send people to the emergency room where when men do, it typically does. So there's nuance there. And it's just, I hope if you take nothing from this, just take some nuance to the sex difference uh, literature on aggression. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, so basically, do you, so, so do you think there is a certain vulnerability in different subgroups of people to be more prone? So then, you know, it's one thing to kind of imagine aggression, like, um, you know, uh, um, and then there's the other thing to actually act on it. So. Um, do you think there will be differences in vulnerability of basically uh, being really aggressive against rival groups? Um, and, and are you planning on maybe 
um, you know, focusing on, on maybe different subgroups, maybe somebody that experienced a violence throughout development, more or less aggressive, I don't know, it could probably go both ways, um, or uh, versus, you know, or that experience scarcity, you know, all these different factors would be interesting. I know it would be a huge amount of work to go through different factors like this, but um, yeah, is that something you're, you're planning to research? Yeah, I mean, we have a great literature out there right now on the things that predict intergroup conflict. Like, we kind of know the factors that will lead two groups to get into conflict, and we kind of know how to get them back out of it. It's really just logistics at this at this point. Um, but I still think a neuroscientific perspective is valuable here because uh, it's all based on self-reports. Uh, the literature as it stands. So it's, you know, you're asking people how they think they might do things and how they think they feel. But often we, you know, looking at the brain gives us a, a you know, a little bit more of a um, less biased approach to, to people's uh, thoughts and feelings. And so, yeah, I mean, hope is to look beyond this very, simple intergroup paradigm and try and figure things out in a broader context because we are about to run face first into this right with with climate change we are about to experience human migration on an unprecedented scale and that is going to make intergroup interactions uh probably the most uh important thing that's going on in people's minds for like maybe the next like century or two depending on if we can ever get this under control so yeah i mean i think i have desperate need i have a son now so i have a stake in this future um and so i need us to figure out a way to find people who are going to be coming to us from another group who want to share our resources and trying to find a way for that not to erupt into partisan violence. Because it's very easy for that to go immediately into partisan violence like at the United States. Look at folks who are just, you know, very justifiably looking for asylum. And yet our society, you know, just turns them away, which is unconscionable and absurd. And there's an entire political party that at their base is basing their whole entire framework on yeah like let's turn away and hurt people from the other group so yes like this is i think the most pressing problem that we're facing um i i hope that there's hope for it i would love to it depends on which granting agency gives me money but i am currently trying right now for three different agencies try and give me money to try and better understand not only how do we find ourselves so readily at the point where we're willing to hurt people who are from a different group, but how the heck can we fix it? And I really do think that the best hope we have for interrupting intergroup aggression is to make it less rewarding. Find ways that hurting that outgroup doesn't feel good. So boost empathy, boost compassion, really make people look people in the eyes that they're hurting. Um, that's the only way you're going to disrupt this mechanism. Uh, and I think that's what we all need to be focused on amidst all the other things we need to be focused on. 
Yeah, I agree with you that this is a, a very important topic. I mean, you know, it's not just in the US, in Europe, systematically let people die in the ocean uh, so they don't make it uh, to Europe. And um, it's kind of very selective which immigrants we think are good and bad. And now with the Ukraine um, war, um, you know, it's for uh, people are getting more and more against um, refugees. Uh, and that sentiment kind of started with the Syrian uh, conflict. So yeah, I'm and and yeah, I totally agree. This will just be a, a more and more uh, like urgent matter and uh, additionally to fixing climate change and <laughs> everything else and it's ridiculous that the countries that are responsible for climate refugees uh, now don't want to help uh, climate refugees so uh, but uh, rational I agree that rational thinking and argument is really not enough um, because it's not rational uh, thinking that that leads people to it. What I really also think is really important that you pointed out that everyone at some point hurts somebody and wakes up in the morning and feels like a good person. It's not that this can't happen to us. Uh, and knowing that I think is really important and being aware of that, that you know, we are all included in this. Um, that's part of, of our human system. So, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, pointing those things out. Yeah, thank Go ahead, Joseph. Yeah, I was going to say there's something you, you're probably familiar with it. It's something I heard some years ago that um, that they were saying that it used to be when they were like training the military uh, that they found a problem in that a lot of people they were training had trouble pulling the trigger to try to kill another human being. And so what they did is they had practice where they, I think that what they did is they didn't show a face. They just had like a cardboard figure that they would shoot at to get them to overcome that kind of what they considered a natural aversion to hurting someone. And then they pointed this person, I can't remember who it was, pointed out that video games are exactly that kind of a training that would, you know, you have these figures that you hurt and harm and, you know, shoot and so on, that they're just sort of stick figures and you get used to doing it and you get used to feeling good about it. So um, I don't know if that has much to do with it, at least in some countries where they play a lot of video games. But on the, on the other hand, I think there is just a lot of a sort of a self-interest thing that gets kicked in, especially when people feel under stress. So like you mentioned, if they feel economic stress, um, there's just a sort of instinct, perhaps, of self-preservation that this person's, other person's threatening my livelihood or my, my ability to get a job because they're going to compete with me for jobs or something. Anyway, just some, some thoughts. <laughs> No, those are excellent thoughts. It's it's really important to consider the fact that it takes a lot 
for a person to seriously harm another person. And really, if you look at the research, there's really only two instances which it happens commonly. And that's where people think they're defending themselves or someone else. And in that case, there's no real conflict whatsoever. Or that they have been premeditating it for a very, very, very long time. Where they've been thinking about it, ruminating about it. Um, they have it all planned out. And of course, there's the very, very, very rare exception of like a true psychopath who just kind of is on the hunt, who's a, a, a social predator. So people are not trying to hurt other people when they wake up in the morning, even though at the end of the day, when they put their head back on the pillow, they probably have hurt someone. Your worst enemy, the person you like conjuring your mind right now, someone who you think like hates you probably doesn't want to hurt you they don't like if you ask them like would you want to punch that person in the face they would say no it would take a lot for me to do that and yet in the right circumstances they could so you can't trust people's stated intentions you really just kind of have to look at their behavior and that makes our job really 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 fucking hard Um, I saw Scott and uh, Edward, you joined the stage. Do you have questions or comments? Sure, I, in no particular order. Uh, David, there was a late 60s, early 70s paperback psychology book that uh, it's called something like On Human Aggression. They made the point in the beginning that infants uh, basically need aggressive urges as a survival uh, mechanism. So it's kind of built into a lot of what we do, but we may not recognize it as aggression. And the other thing that came to mind was the dopamine uh, side there, you're mentioning the feeling good about uh, aggression. And I recall a particular scene of some very closely related folks uh, where they were in this big argument, they were kind of being apologetic and they came into the room to me and apologizing, but this thrill on their face. It, it was like it and I reflected on that book or, or at least the dopamine part. And I was like, yeah, I saw it. I saw the uh, sort of the dopamine connection to aggression where the higher thought, the higher self should have been like, no, this is not the right sort of urge to follow. So I also have I kind of witnessed the hijacking of the higher thought with uh, anger and rage and aggression where um, uh, or negative emotions in general, but um, on the other point, you know, can pick any of these if there's any, any comments you'd, you'd like to share, um, is the dehumanization part where I believe empathy is really fragile and we kind of have to be in a good spot to practice it. And then uh, if you have an immediate threat, I think dehumanization is really easy um, and quick. And again, is is let's say media or let's say whichever team we're rooting for, or or let's say politicians trying to play one group against another, are they taking advantage of that circuitry? Okay, that's that's the end of my non sequitur series of questions here. Thanks. Oh, it's not non sequitur at all. It's extremely relevant for for so many reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to that 
there's a lot of different ways in which uh, aggression can manifest. We're looking at aggression in in those ways where people can, can justify it and they can feel that thrill, especially looking at it as a as a thrill that fades quickly. Right. So it's that when I was doing it, it felt amazing. And I felt great while I was really giving it to my ex. And yet right after you felt like shit. And so we've kind of developed this uh, model of, of revenge and sadistic aggression where it does feel good in the moment. We shouldn't deny that. Hurting people that you think should be hurt does feel good right then and there. But there's a hangover that nobody talks about. And so we've documented it empirically where you're absolutely right. It feels great in the moment, but just like going out to the bar, there's a, there's a price to be paid in that just afterwards, there's this dip. And here's the problem is that you don't go back to baseline afterwards, right? So you have this, you know, you have your baseline mood, how you feel when you're just walking around the world, someone ticks you off. It makes you really angry. You get back at them. And you think it's going to get you back to where you were before. And for a moment, it actually gets you better. It feels even better, but you don't level out where you were before they pissed you off. You actually go lower. So you have a hangover effect afterwards. And so what does that do? It motivates you to do it more. And it motivates people even to seek out being provoked to seek out being uh, rejected or insulted or you know, otherwise just in threatened or infuriated so that they can then retaliate and get that sweet bump of revenge. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. It is, it is this, this fleeting dopaminergic moment of yes, this feels great, but the problem is it feeds immediately then into the addiction cycle that we see with other uh, externalizing behaviors. Uh, my question for you is, have they done any studies on people of faith, uh, people who practice their faith and their behavior to the point where they're not using these different outside stimuli uh, versus, you know, their belief in God and the faith community? Have there been any studies in reference to that particular group of people? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, folks who tend to be more religious tend to be less aggressive um, and they tend to be less aggressive to things like provocation. So if you if you insult them or reject them, they, they don't tend to retaliate as much. Um, and that's about as much as there is to my understanding, but there there needs to be more. But as far as I can say right now, the work that's been done shows that religious folks tend to not be as vengeful or retributive. Thank you very much. Hey, Susan, did you want to um, ask something or comment something? Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Yeah, I have a few questions, but I'll just ask one and if there's time later. How do you explain, or based on your research and what you've come across, um, the attraction to video games? And do you feel like what you're discovering has a correlation to why people like to play 
video games that tend have a tendency to skew towards violence. Um, not all of them, but most of them, it seems, especially the very successful ones. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a great question. It's a question I've really thought about a lot. And something that's really helped me is to read a lot of historic texts and to realize that uh, violent media is nothing new, right? Uh, the, the human fascination with watching people inflict horrific violence upon each other is pretty much as old as humans. Um, there's very few societies that are what we consider developed that didn't have some kind of a violent um, sport some kind of violent recreation, right? Uh, violence captivates people, specifically male combatants hurting each other to assume superiority. And it's prevalent in every single society. Um, so yeah, I think video games are just a modern manifestation of that. I don't think there's anything special or unique about them. There's no good evidence showing that they're um, particularly a causal factor in, in human violence. They are associated with aggression, but that can easily be explained by the fact that aggressive people tend to play aggressive media. So, so yeah, I, I really do think that they're just a modern manifestation of an ancient tendency where we like to, humans like to hurt people, but we don't wanna go through the whole rigmarole of risking our, our health and well-being on that. And so it's nice to simulate it um, without actually engaging in it. So it is setting off that stimulus that you were mentioning, that it stimulates something in your brain when you're shooting people in video games, you would say? What is that stimulus, Susan? Well, it's something that David had mentioned earlier. Well, there's... Yeah, I, I absolutely think it's tapping into a... Uh, 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 ready-made tendency to enjoy the suffering of our group members which is why if you look at most violent video games you're not playing against people just like you you're playing against a demon or a ghost or some kind of nightmarish um, representation of an enemy and so yes it absolutely is tapping into that but uh, again I, I don't think it's anything novel or particularly deleterious. I think it's just a new manifestation of something as old as human civilization. Well, let's break it down to something as simple as serotonin breakdown, injecting to the brain, right? So wouldn't that be different for each individual? So let's look at same-sex marriage. That is different for each individual. So that statementless is perspective. I'm not sure what your question is. So basically, Susan saying killing people is going to release something that's going to give you an arousal or a positive sensation, hormonal or whatnot. But that is different upon each individual, correct? Yeah, of course. I mean, all, all biological, psychological responses are unique to the individual. It's what we call an ideographic response. And to create that ideographic response, what is the breakdown hormonally? Hormones, hormones linked to aggression is, is far more complicated than we used to think. Um, but, but neurotransmitter wise also, 
far more complicated than we used to think. All we know is that at the end of the day, there are very reliable behavioral responses to certain types of instigation across people. And so if you're rejected or excluded, if you're exposed to certain types of violent media, you are perhaps somewhat more likely to be aggressive. But we can't causally implicate any biological mechanism in that. What we're trying to do is take a first look to try and think about what mechanisms might be involved in the hope that future research can causally intervene upon them. You know, we have to we have to remember that like this is a very young science, right? Biology, physics, chemistry, they've been around a lot longer than we have. So we're just taking our first initial looks into what makes people hurt each other. Um, and hopefully one day soon we'll have some causal causal mechanisms there. I don't know if, if any if no one else has a question. I thought of yes, another. Yes, I have a question. Oh, go so ahead. So thank you, thank you so much, David. That was a very different, I mean, presentation, and absolutely, I can see some of the, I mean, reason behind it from the medical perspective. What my question is different now, based upon the, I mean, topic which you mentioned about the intergroup exclusion. Also, I was just wondering, what is your opinion about the? concept of the transhumanism and aggression because when we are talking about the transhumanism we are talking about capacities and capacities might be one of the reasons for aggression and we have three pillars around that as a super longevity intelligence and well-being do you think that they are contradicted with each other or we're gonna have the same situation I'm, i i was just wondering what is your opinion about it I don't know enough <laughs> about that topic to really weigh in, so I, I, I don't have an opinion. If no one else has a question at the moment, I have another question. Um, anyway, what I was thinking about when you were saying about the dopamine, and it sounded like an addiction type situation, that kind of gives me some hope. I don't know if you see it this way, that if it's a sort of addictive phenomenon and we're doing research on kind of addictive behaviors, you know, that maybe that might yield some benefit, um, that maybe some people are, are too addicted to their dopamine and, and in a certain way that promotes violence and we could intervene in some way. Thanks. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is a, a road I've tried to go down a little bit. The, the the current feeling of the field right now is that folks have gone too far and trying to say that certain behaviors are addictive. I think folks are pretty uh, on board with saying that like gambling is addictive. And so, so we're obviously like uh, substance abuse issues. But um the literature is trying to show that like social media, violent video games, aggressive behavior, those things are addictive. That's meeting with some pretty serious pushback right now. We're, it's, it's really a point of like, you know, how do you define what's addictive versus just what's like uh, problematic? And I think lots of behaviors are reinforcing and that's entirely up to who you are as an individual. And those things can it definitely make problems in your life? Are they truly addictive is an open question. I used to think that, you know, revenge and aggression were truly addictive. And I've actually kind of backed away from that. Um, now realizing that there's 
I think really what characterizes addiction is withdrawal and tolerance. And I don't, I have not seen any good evidence for that in humans. There's really good evidence for it in mice. Um, so they've done great studies showing that mice really exhibit withdrawal and tolerance um, for uh, aggression and that they'll want to do it more and more and more and more and more. But with humans, I just don't see it. And uh, I'm happy to, to change my expectations, but I just haven't seen any good evidence that aggression and revenge are truly addictive in people. I, I started from the position that they were, and I just couldn't find any good evidence that they actually were. So it's, it's, you have to try and ask yourself what is truly addictive versus what is a behavior that people like to do and causes problems in their life. And that, that those are, those two things are different. And it's just about where we draw that line. And right now, based on the evidence, we can't call aggression or revenge and addictive behavior as much as I would I would like to because that would really open up a lot of funding for me. <laughs> but yeah, it's not yeah, so far. That's interesting. I worked at some point um, on habitual avoidance in animals, and um, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, that basically all they would you know they were trying to do is like avoid something bad and that it can turn into a habit and kind of and not flexible but we the group also assumed that um it was rewarding to avoid and that's why it became such a strong behavior that is it's hard to break basically and then the animals keep avoiding although there's no threat anymore and that's basically it's rewarding to avoid like not like you just escape something bad but the fact that you manage to escape is like something rewarding so you kind of you know i see a lot of overlap in that thinking and that that's really interesting so um uh so could it be like a habitual avoidance to in Engage in these type of behaviors because you're kind of avoiding your horrible life or loneliness, you know, like or a threat that you think is a threat. It doesn't matter if it's actually a threat, right? If another group is actually a threat, you just the thought that it could be could lead you to to get into this habitual pattern of behavior. Katarina, I'd like to state that. A reward system breaks down to a very simple aspect, a release of what creates a reward. So if you break it yeah. down to a simple complex of what makes a reward a reward, it could be anything. So dopamine release, simply said, let's not complicate it. There could be various scenarios of what releases that reward system. Now back to David. Yeah, I've been deleting like different brain regions and seeing what, um, like in animals, and seeing what changes the type of behavior and what is rewarding and whatnot. There's like, I agree, there's a lot of literature, but um, I just saw the overlap in David's stating of the reward mechanism there and uh, and um, the threat avoidance work. I did for a while um, in animals. I, I understand the complex complexity of it and the different brain regions that are 
part of it. And different brain regions play different important roles at different time points um, during the learning, during the recall, during than others if you want to extinct that or try to break it. It's again other brain regions that are responsible or play the biggest role in that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. But um, I just saw an overlap in, in David's research and that animal data there. Absolutely, Katarina. There is a lot of time sensitive information and data that is collected when doing double blind or non double blind studies. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. However, back to what David was speaking upon, I want to state that he is challenging pretty difficult questions. David, your answers yield no, honestly, nothing great. I don't understand why everybody's answering you, asking you these questions. Well, maybe you read the paper first. I'm sorry, Dave, about that. There's, you know, this is a public room. There's always somebody <laughs> that um, is trying to. Oh, no, it's fine. I, I, this is actually like less, uh, less severe than a typical academic conference. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rhonda was here asking a question. I hope you still have time for one question. I know we've been going for almost an hour and a half. And... Uh, but yeah, Rhonda was waiting here for a while. Thank you. Oh, I'm so sorry. I came in very late. Um, I wanted to ask um, about, in terms of the amygdala and in working with various people who have had trauma uh, throughout their lives or especially during their early years, um, and then they seem to have a hyper it's, it's, almost, it's a high-sensitive amygdala that seems to be on high alert all the time. So obviously the thinking areas of the hippocampus aren't working as well, and um, so they're always triggered. And in those cases, um, rather than it being habitual, as much as it is they're always in a threat mode, right? It's always looking for the threat mode, and then it can't get off that track of thought of, uh, you know, uh, whether it's avoidance, fixing, freezing, you know, or fighting, right? So uh, that, that whole system just stays intact. And I, I often have thought that suicide and homicide are two sides of the same coin um, because of that. And what, to me, it's almost built into our cultures around the world, because we're all traumatized, you know, thousands of years of trauma of each other. And so it's almost, um, and then the competitive nature of our cultures, I call it cultural narcissism, actually creates this internal threat. So it's almost a part of the, if you will, the architecture of the way we've come to understand how we can interact. There's almost an okayness, even though it's not okay, or at least that's what it seems like. And I'm wondering your thoughts on all that. Is it just a, you know, rather than the reward system, which is a very different take on it, where there's actual, I mean, I'm sure there are people who find reward because it's soothing on some level, but in most cases, I'm thinking it's just a hyper amygdala, always in threat mode, 
and and when it on an individual basis on cultural aspects it's cultural narcissism the com com competition between cultures and superiority aspects I know your thoughts I would love to hear some thoughts on that yeah no I'm so glad you you brought the, brought all that up I mean, it, it taps into two things I've been thinking about recently um, the first is that uh, the amygdala is a real pain uh, everyone thinks they know what it does and uh, everyone's wrong including me, I have no idea what it does. Every time I think I've got it figured out, I don't know. The problem is it's, it's made out of like, you know, it's a, it's a collection of nuclei. So I don't know, but I know for, I know for real that one thing that it's involved in and everyone would agree with this is that it's involved in reward, which is kind of crazy. Right. And so the, the, this is where the amygdala really starts to shed some light into aggression, which is that, oops, sorry about that. <laughs> Everybody um, okay? Whole, yeah, is everyone okay? <laughs> yeah, I, I just had a little tip over of a coffee table. Um, we're good. We're all is good. that aggression? Okay, cool. The, aggression? the amygdala does many things, but I would say it does two things simultaneously that really shed light on aggression and really don't conflict with our findings, but actually mesh really nicely, which is that some of the nuclei within the amygdala process threat and some of them process reward. And they're intimately related. And so there's clearly a threat reward trade-off, right? So sometimes, you know, you can imagine um, a proto-human going into a part of the forest where it's like, okay, there are a lot of wolves in this part of the forest, but there's also a lot of game or fruit. And the amygdala is simultaneously computing those conflicting values where it's like, okay, I could easily get killed here, but I could also easily like come out of here with enough food to feed my family for a month. So the amygdala really is, is, is far more complicated than we think it is. And I keep trying to understand it. And I, I, I keep not being able to do so. And I can't reliably pin it down in my data. So I've just kind of given up on that, that whole process. And I think it's because it does so many things all at once. At the end of the day, I really think the amygdala, what it does is say, like, this thing, I don't know what this is, so I think it's important. I think, like, at the end of the day, the amygdala is telling you, like, okay, this is not like a humdrum part of our existence. I'm not used to this. I don't know what this is. It's significant. And so it, it tags it, and it says, I feel things about this thing. And they can be good things. Or they can be bad things. But anyway, that's that's my lecture on the on the amygdala. But but the other thing that I'm really, really interested in now, and I'm so glad you brought up, is this idea of like collective identity and the idea of identifying as uh as, as not only having your personal identity, but as the groups you identify as. So like uh I have my personal identity, I'm like an extrovert, I I'm I'm pretty neurotic, I'm pretty agreeable, I think. I'm pretty open to new experiences. I, I'm I'm pretty not conscientious. I'm very impulsive. But like some of the groups I belong to have a different identity, right? They are like so I'm a professor. And so that group identity is very conscientious, not impulsive. They're very disagreeable and I'm pretty agreeable. They're very introverted, whereas I'm extroverted. And so I think we have to think about those different identities when we're talking about intergroup violence where it's like what's the identity of the group 
that you're doing aggression or not on behalf of, right? Um, maybe I'm a very nonviolent person, but the group that I care so much about is a very violent group. So I'm very glad you brought up both those 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 topics. Thank you. Um, yeah, the 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 part of that that gets um, it almost attaches to what you were saying is I tend to say that um, it's fight, flight, fix, or freeze which tended to me at people who would use it and, and that kind of speaks to the issue of there's a reward and a conflict and a threat right in the woods um that's the to fix or resolve whatever's going on but it can't really do that at least that's my understanding can't really do that effectively in part you're not oxygenating the brain properly because shallow breathing you know, you're in a hyper mode, um, so it's not really oxygenating really well, and you're in, in, and it could be hyper fixing, and so therefore it would go to some extreme as opposed to a thoughtful process. And it may even be long term in the sense that, you know, premeditated, I'm working on, that's still part of the rumination, fixing to resolve something, even. Uh, and, and that in the resolve is the reward. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's where we try and pretend like reward is some different thing, like that's totally separated from other processes is where we get it wrong. And I think you've got it right is that it's, it's inextricably linked to all these other functions of the brain. Um, but on that note, I do have to run. <laughs> I've I had a delightful <laughs> time with y'all, but I do, I do have to scoot. It is Thank 1030 so now. Much. and Oh, past my bedtime. <laughs> well, Dave, yeah, I, I wanted to, uh, after letting Rhonda talk, um, let you off the hook, basically. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate you coming here. You gave such an amazing experience here today to learn about your research and also how you um, managed to engage us all in, in the conversation. This was a quite a uh, wonderful experience and, and very unique style of uh, sharing your research. I compliment you on that. And we have a lot to learn from you, <laughs> not just the research, but also the style of sharing uh, your research was really something. So, uh, yeah, we appreciate it so much on many levels. And, um, yeah, uh, as you can see us in the chat, everyone was very engaged and uh, thank you. And please come back anytime when you have maybe some updates. We wish you all the funding and um, <laughs> need us to go and complain to NIH or someone. Yeah, yeah. Please complain to NIH that I'm not getting funded enough. That would do me that would do me wonders. Please do that. Please all No, I had a blast. Yeah. Please have me please have me back whenever you want. I would love to I would love to come back. This is this was a blast. Yeah, yep. as an extra, extrovert, you fit in well with Clubhouse. Yeah. You really, you really would like it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pathological the, uh... extrovert. So anytime you need someone just to talk into the void, I'm, I'm your guy. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> we He's all heard kind of... you say that. <laughs> that's how, that's so recorded. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you never get sleep again. Don't say that. <laughs> You'll learn. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, share the program officer's email. We bombard them with, we spam them with supportive emails. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, please get your sleep. We really appreciate it. And yeah, as I said, come back anytime. Um, and um, yeah, uh, that was wonderful. And thank you so much for everyone for um, asking wonderful questions, for coming here, for participating. We really appreciate it. Come back, follow the club if you like discussions like this. And um, stay tuned for, um, for our rooms. Thank you so much, everyone. And have a good night. Thank you. Thank you, Katerina and Joyce, for pinging me in, too. And thank you, David. It's wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you all. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. I look forward Have to a great night. Soon. Good night. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone.